All right, we're going to go ahead and get started. Welcome, everybody, to our final session of Truth for Life. I'll tell you what's coming up in a moment. But the guys were passing out copies of the lesson, which is the same lesson uh, as two weeks ago. We didn't meet last week because of Easter, but we didn't finish the lesson two weeks ago. So it was our hope that somebody might remember that and bring their lesson back with them. But it appears nobody did that. And so we... Uh, all right, we got a few people who did. All right. Donna, Carolyn, all right. Julie, good work. Thanks, David. So what do we have? One left? We have plenty. Yay. We made some extra copies just in case people forgot. We just weren't counting on everybody forgetting. Okay. So hopefully we have enough. But we'll be looking at page 35. We really only did one page two weeks ago. But let me tell you what is coming up. Next week, I will be leading our four-week newcomers orientation. That'll start next week and then go for the three weeks following. That'll be during this hour in one of our classrooms. You'll get a notebook of material if you choose to take that class. As the name suggests, it's for newcomers. It's an orientation, so it's telling you about our church, who we are, what we believe, uh, where we've come from, where we hope to go in the future, all of that. It's all to give you information to help you make a decision, is this the place that God has for me to grow and to serve? No pressure for you to do that. So attending is just to help you make a, a decision. So if you've never taken the newcomer's orientation, if you're not a member of the church, I would highly encourage you, strongly urge you to take that. If you have taken the newcomer's orientation and you're not a member, then this is, my, this is my applying pressure to you to say when the next newcomer's orientation comes around, then you've had enough time to make a decision about whether or not this is the place. And in all seriousness, if there's outstanding questions you have, uh, issues you want to work through, let us know. Let's do that. And then if uh, for some reason this is not the place, then let's find a Bible-believing church that does work for you because everybody needs to be aligned and committed to and under the shepherding of a God-honoring church. But that'll be next week. Now, for those of you that are not in the newcomer's orientation, uh, we have a we'll have a class in the auditorium uh, for two of the four weeks. The first two weeks, Dr. Combs is going to be teaching. I don't know what Dr. Combs is going to be teaching. Uh, I'm always concerned about what Combs teaches. <laughs> But it's always great what he teaches, as you, as you all have experienced. So he's going to take the first two weeks. The third week, Billy Cochran is going to teach. And I don't know what Billy's going to teach either. And then the fourth week, we have Brian Lennertz. Am I pronouncing, yeah. pronouncing it right? Lennertz. And that's Frank and Janet's son-in-law. So their daughter, Amy, married to Brian. Uh, Pastor Larry mentioned him during the announcements today in first hour, that he's done a lot of work uh, thinking about... Uh, hospitality and first impressions ministry in churches has written even a little book on that uh, on Saturday the 13th he's going to have a 9 to 12 9 to noon seminar in that for anybody that wants to to attend that uh, but he's going to teach for us the following day on the 14th that's mother, happens to be Mother's Day but during second hour since they're in town I've asked him to teach Sunday school for us and I don't know what he's going to teach on at that time uh, either so I'm just trusting all these guys that they're going to teach something related to the Bible but you guys let me know if they if they don't okay and uh, 
So that's the, the next four weeks. Now, when that is all done, when those four weeks are concluded, then we will have on the 21st, on May the 21st, we'll all be back in the auditorium. And we will start a series called Change of Heart, Change of Heart. And it's about what the Bible says about how we change. It'll help you in changing and me, but it'll also help us to help others change. So that's the idea, is to have a good understanding about how we change, but also be better equipped to help other people change. Now, if that name sounds, that title sounds familiar to you, Change of Heart, Back in uh, 20, 2020, over th a little over three years ago, we started to do that series. We got a few weeks into it, and then COVID came. And so we never, f we never finished it. So I expect you to still have your paperwork from that from three years ago. <laughs> so we're going to start from the beginning, and we're going we're gonna to go through it. Uh, and we send out mailers to the community. So all of Trenton is going to receive a mailer uh, to attend that. We hope that then we'll have some folks from uh, our community who will attend. And that highlights, though, the fact that we do that kind of thing highlights why what Brian uh, Lennertz is going to teach about uh, First Impressions Ministry is important. Because we, several times a year, we invite people to come. And when those people come, we want to make them feel as welcome as, as possible. And so those of us who are attuned to that, is, the more that are attuned to that, uh, the better. In fact, I, I will just uh, tell you this, that I did maybe for the first time in 22 years at our church, I had someone tell me that no one uh, came to talk to them as a, as a new person here. And that, uh, I've heard lots of people tell me that, wow, you got a really friendly church, and people came up and talked to me and all of that. So hopefully that was an anomaly, you know, that is an exception. But, you know, it's easy to just kind of get in your groove and, you know, to, to seek out the people you know, talk to the people you know, and not look for the person that you don't, you don't know. So I'm just saying that to you, it's, uh, uh, to all of us, to have that uh, top of mind. And that's the kind of thing that uh, Brian's going to emphasize at that <coughs> seminar on the 13th. So change of heart on the, the 21st. All right, we finished just one page of this lesson on the issue of justification. And on that page, I said turn to page 35. If you will, just look at the first page, though, because I want you to see the title. You see the title at the top of page 34. That I'm, I'm saying justification is grace then and now. And what I want to emphasize now as we finish this lesson is that justification is something that God does for all that come to Christ at a point in time when you are, we are saved, when we're converted, uh, when we become a Christian, when we're born again. Lots of ways to describe that point in time biblically, but there's a point in time where that happens. And Justification, that I'm going to define again so that we all know what it is in a moment, happens. So it happens in the past. And if you are a Christian, then that has happened. But I'm also trying to emphasize the, that's the then part. But there's also a now part, that justification makes a difference. It makes a difference in how I live now. And that's what we're going to see uh, in the last couple of pages of the notes that you have. So top of page 35 now. I remind you that justification is 
the act of God whereby he declares a sinner to be legally righteous and treats him as such. So notice the words declares and treats are highlighted. And what we're trying to at pains to do in this paragraph is to make clear that it doesn't mean you actually are righteous. You're not made righteous, you see in that second line. Nobody in this room is completely righteous. Nobody this side of heaven will be completely righteous. Not until glory will we be completely righteous. But God declares us to be so even now. Justification, as used in Scripture, is a legal term. And it envisions God as the judge and us at the bar of God's justice. And we don't measure up. And even though we don't measure up, God declares us to be pardoned and to be righteous. And he doesn't do that, uh, he doesn't do that arbitrarily. There's a basis upon which God does it. The basis upon which he can declare you righteous and me righteous is that there's a substitution and a transfer of someone else's righteousness to you and me. And of course, that's Jesus. So God doesn't just say, hey, let's let bygones be bygones. Let's forget about it. What's a little cosmic treason between friends? <laughs> he doesn't say any of that. This has to be paid for, and you have to be perfectly righteous to live with me forever. So that's going to have to be acquired somehow, but thankfully the somehow is through the person and work of the Lord Jesus. And so God declares us to be something we're not. And in fact, we saw two weeks ago from Romans chapter 4, Romans chapter 4 and verse 5, Here's a phrase used there, Romans chapter 4 and verse 5. God, now I'm quoting, justifies the wicked. So, so the people who are justified are actually wicked. <laughs> We're not actually righteous. We're declared to be righteous by God on the basis of the righteousness of, of Christ. So, that being the case, it follows that justification is a work of God. You see that on page 35. And these four passages, each in different ways, point to the fact that it's the work of God. It's not your work. It's not my work. The first one there from Romans 3. This righteousness is given. So it's a gift. It's given. It's from God. And it's given, notice how, through faith. Not through work, not through merit, not through attainment. It's given through faith. The word faith, I bet you, a hundred times over the years, I have said this at Community Bible Church, that when you see the word faith in your Bible, it's the same Greek word as belief. And that's always been helpful to me to think about faith that way. Faith is believing. So... You could put there, rightly, this righteousness is given through belief in Jesus Christ. And in fact, that's why it then says to all who believe. So you could interchange the words, this righteousness is given through belief in Jesus Christ to all who have faith. All who have faith, all who believe in who he is and, and what he did. 
And notice, we are justified, declared righteous freely by His grace. So there's no payment, there's no attainment that goes with it. It's something God does. Because Christ has provided the righteousness, He He's the one who applies it to individual people. Therefore, Romans 5, since we have been justified, again, there it is through faith, through belief. Romans 8 says just very directly, it is God who does the declaring. It's God who justifies. In Galatians chapter 2, know that a person is not declared righteous, not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So you just see that over and over again, right? That it's a work of God. It's not something that we can, we can merit. It's not something we can earn in any, any way. Now, sometimes people look at that, know that a person is not justified by the works of the law. Roman Catholics make a big deal of that. Because what they say is, oh, yeah, 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 You're not you are not justified by works of the law. But that doesn't mean you're not justified by your other works. It's the works of the law that are no more. And they do that also in Romans chapter 3 and verse 28. Romans chapter 3 and verse 28 has that same phrase, works of the law, apart from the law. So they say, aha, you see, it's, that, it's those works that are the problem. But you still got other works you've got to do in order for you to be justified. Well, a couple things about that. One, uh, what Paul is doing is he is, he's, he's dealing with the work system that the people he was writing to had. It happened to be the law. If he were writing now, he'd be writing about the Roman Catholic system and saying you're not justified through keeping that system either. So he was writing about the system that they had. That was the Mosaic law. Uh, but also, you can argue from, and you should, you should think about this, from the, the greater to the lesser. Meaning this, if you, could, if you could be justified by any set of rules, what set of rules would that be? Wouldn't it be the set that God gave? If nobody could be justified by the set of rules God gave, how are you going to improve on his list? By coming up with a new, a new list. You see what I mean? If you can be justified by those, you can't be justified by any. And Paul says that, actually, in, in Galatians, in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 21. In Galatians 2, 21, he says this, If righteousness could have come by a law, if any law could have imparted righteousness, then it certainly would have come by the law. That's what he says. Right in one verse, he says, if any law could do it, it would have been this law, the law of Moses. But since the law of Moses can't do it, no other law can either. So don't get thrown by the works of the law, the works of the law thing. Justification is a work of God, and it's based on, middle of page 35, based on Christ Jesus' death as our substitute. Going back to the first part of your Bible, like prophet Isaiah in the famous Isaiah chapter 53, Surely He, the Messiah, took up our pain and bore our suffering. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on Him, and the Lord laid on Him the iniquity of us all. By His knowledge, my ser righteous servant 
will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. So Christ Jesus took our place on the cross. At that time, mankind's sin was placed on him, and he experienced the full force of God's wrath. Now, what's the connection between that, him dying on the cross, and what Isaiah chapter 53 says about him being crushed and all of that? What's the connection between the cross and our justification? God declaring us to be righteous. Because you could just think of the cross and you say, okay, Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sins. And that's what he did. Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 3. So he died for our sins. Um, so what's that got to do with declaring us to be righteous? Here's what it's got to do with. Is that in Jesus' death on the cross, he not only paid the penalty for your sin, past, present, and future. He certainly did that. But he also did something else. He accomplished the full work that the Father sent him to earth to do. That's why Philippians 2 says he was obedient unto death. You guys remember reading that? He's obedience unto death, even death on the cross. What that's saying is, Jesus was obedient all the way to death. He was obedient every moment of his existence to the very, from a human standpoint, end to death. His death was part of that obedience. To put it another way, his death was part of his righteousness. He was perfectly righteous because he obeyed the will of the Father in everything including dying. So he was obedient all the way to the point of death, and that's why then that passage, Philippians chapter 2, says, therefore, because he was obedient all the way to the point of death, therefore, because of that, God has highly exalted him and given him the name that's above every name. You guys remember that? So see, that's the connection between those two parts of Philippians chapter 2. The therefore connects the death piece with the exaltation piece. And the reason he's exalted is because he completed the work perfectly. Perfectly righteously. Did everything he was supposed to do. Thought everything he was supposed to think. Said everything he was supposed to say. Did it all. All the way to the point of being willing to die on a cruel death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. That's Philippians 2, Romans chapter 4 and verse 25. Romans chapter 4 and verse 25. Romans 4.25 says this. He was raised for our justification. Now, you see the connection here. Death. The death was part of his obedience. It was the culmination of his obedience of his whole life. He was obedient all the way to the point of death. And because of that, therefore, he's exalted. The father looks at his complete life all the way to the point of death. It's completely obedient, completely righteous, and the father approves of all of it. And the resurrection is an indication of the father's complete approval of what God the son did on earth. That's why it says he's raised for our justification. 
So the connection between his death and the connection between his, between his uh, righteousness and then the righteousness now that's available to us, to be given to us, is that the death is his full obedience, his full righteous obedience. All right, so I want to give you something that if I loved you, I would have typed out for you. But I, I go through this in Master Plan for Life. So some of you have taken that. If you've not taken it, it's offered again this fall on Wednesday nights. But I'll describe it, and if you want to write it down. But here's how it goes. That the Bible teaches that every person has, and, and the Bible uses accounting terminology, accounting terminology, to do this. So I'm not just making this up when I say every person has their own balance sheet before God. I mean, he uses accounting terminology. In fact, you see, do you see the line that says justification involves the legal transfer and then it says imputation? You see that, imputation? So to impute, that's an accounting term. Uh, in the NIV, it, it'll say, the King James says imputation. The NIV will say counted. But these are all, these are all accounting terms, Okay. And every person, the Bible teaches, has a balance sheet. So on the back of one of your sheets there, if you want to write, you know, John's balance sheet. And here's how your balance sheet looks. You got your balance sheet and you got two headings, debit, credit. Now, I'll just remind you that debits are bad, credits are good. Okay? Sometimes it's easy to get that mixed up because, you know, if I have too much credit, you know, or if my credit cards are maxed out, credits are bad. But no, in your account, credits are good. You want credits in your account. When you make deposits, they get credited to your account. When you make withdrawals, they are debited to your account. So, there's you and your balance sheet. You've got debit, credit. Debit's a bad, credit's good. All right, that's at the top, debit, credit. And then along the side, along the left side, you've got three... Uh, titles for entries that go in there. Three titles. The first one is this, Adam's sin. Adam's sin. Now, is Adam's sin debited or credited to you? That would be debited. Remember, debit's bad. So you come into the world, you come into the world with a debt. The Bible talks in these terms, doesn't it? Sin is debt that you can't pay. You've got this debt you can't pay when you come into the world. On your balance sheet, debit credit, you got debited Adam's sin. Well, how big is that? Well, that would be impossible, impossible for you to pay back. So if God leaves it there, and he would be just to do so, true? God could leave, have left it there. Okay, there you go. You made your bed, you lay in it. But God's plan of redemption, we know in the gospel, Christ. And so you have a second now uh, title for an entry, and that is Christ's death. So you've got Adam's sin, debited, but you've got Christ's death. And remember, the credits are the good ones. So Christ's death is credited. So you've got you know, your name, debit credit, Adam's sin, check mark under debit. Christ's death, check mark under credit. 
So now how does your balance sheet look? Well, we're back to zero. Which means you're still not going to heaven. You're, you're up. I mean, before, I mean, you were, you were infinitely negative. Now we're just big fat zeros. But nobody's going to heaven with that. Now, I just pause here because many people mistake that. We think, hey, Christ's death, I'm going to heaven. But remember, there's this connection between Christ's death and his righteousness and the, and the approval of all of that by God the Father. So the third title you have, Adam's sin, Christ's death, Christ's life, or Christ's righteousness. And which one is that, debit or credit? It's credited to you. And now you look at that balance sheet. And you go, wow, I came into the world with Adam's sin. And I now possess, in the present, the value of the death of Christ and the life of Christ, the righteous life of Christ to me. And how valuable is the righteousness of Christ? <laughs> how many sins did Christ pay for on the cross with his death? You look at those two check marks and you go, that's it, man. That's my life right there. Praise be to God. And that's the good news. That's the, that's the gospel. And so justification involves the legal transfer, the imputation of Christ's righteousness to us. Christ experienced our punishment so that through faith in him we would not have to experience it. The one who committed no sin was treated as if he were a sinner, punished accordingly. So that we who have no righteousness could be treated by God as if we were righteous. When sinners genuinely repent of their sin and determine to obey Christ, they take advantage of his death upon the cross. At that point, they have their sins forgiven and are legally united with Christ the righteous one. From then on, God treats them as clothed in the righteousness of Christ, not clothed, clothed in their own sinfulness. Page 36, and in our remaining time, we want to see the now part. That's the then part. But how is this grace of justification manifest now for us? Practical consequences of justification. The beautiful riches that are ours because of God's justifying grace in Jesus Christ change how we view ourselves, how we relate to others, how we live in this broken world. God uses the truths of the doctrine of His Word to change us. That is, it changes how we think, what we desire, how we live. Here are six words that capture the new lifestyle that is propelled by God's justifying grace. So I'm going to go through these six things, okay? But I just want you to get then you don't live your Christian life because you have to. You live your Christian life because you want to. The, the difference between the biblical gospel and every other religious system is every other religious system is based upon greed and ours is based on gratitude. Every other system's trying to get something and the system of the gospel of God's grace is 
You do because you already have. And it changes you. And it changes your motivation. Oh, I want to serve in God's mission because Pastor Ken beats me over the head every Sunday. So I just got to find something to do to shut him up. If he, and at least if he's not going to shut up, he's not talking to me anymore. It's whatever other slouches are out there not doing their thing, right? And that's not the motivation, and I don't want it to be the motivation. The motivation should be, this is what Christ has done. And I want to give my life to him. It changes you. It changes you in practical ways. So here are these six things. Humility. The doctrine of justification not only confronts me and you with how messed up we are, but it also confronts us with our complete inability to restore ourselves. Humbly admitting the damage that sin has done to you is like standing in front of a once beautiful but now decayed and broken down house with no understanding of how to restore it, no tools to do it. There we were, the destruction and decay of sin reaching to every part of our being with no ability to help ourselves. There we were, enemies of the one who we were made to have a relationship with and there was nothing we could do to make peace with him. As Paul says, we were without no hope and without God in the world. The doctrine of justification devastates self-glory. It puts a hammer to human pride. It makes a mockery of self-righteousness and, self and the self-aggrandizing, self-justifying arguments that go with it. This truth destroys our pride in our power and our wisdom. It removes your ability to think that you have done something to be deserving. This truth requires you to confess that you have no power on your own to keep yourself from being without God and without hope. And when you admit that, what this doctrine says about you is true, humility results. And that itself is a gift of grace. If people believe just those two paragraphs, it would cut counseling in, at least in half. Marriage counseling for sure. Marriage counseling for sure. Because people have problems in marriages because when you got married, it was two sinners saying, I do. And when those two sinners say, I do, they bro both brought their agenda to the marriage. But what if both of them have this kind of agenda? The humility agenda. Both of them. But it's all too rare even in Christian circles, that you see people with that kind of mindset. You get two people with that kind of mindset, you've got a beautiful thing going on. I'll just say in my marriage, we at least got one person like that. I'm not saying which one. I'm just... <laughs> you all know it's Kim, okay? So. But really, it just has a profound effect on you and your relationships, how you view others. Let me just ask you all, I said in the first hour, hey, we, you know, our culture's changing We'll see what's going to happen in the years to come. What are we going to have to do, you know, about transgenderism and all of that? We'll, we'll see. Don't be afraid. Have courage. We'll tell the truth. And God will continue his work, okay? So that, that's, that's the way to look at it. And whatever it is that we are called to confront as we carry out his work, in whatever environment that is, you are going to carry this humility with you that says, but for the grace of God, so go I. 
We don't hate transgender people. We don't hate anybody. We don't act like we do. And let's be honest, it's a struggle. It's a struggle to have a Christ-like attitude toward people whose behavior is abhorrent. And they are, and, and especially when then they are uh, imposing that on top of it. Very hard. I get it. What it means, we have to keep emphasizing. I got to keep emphasizing this then, together. So that I've got my heart right, you've got your heart right as we view people. We're going to tell the truth. We're going to tell it truthfully and directly. But we've got to do it with a heart that's controlled this way. Remember in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus said two men went up to the temple to pray. And the one guy says, I'm thankful I'm not like this guy, right, next to me. And he bragged about his spiritual resume. No humility, self-righteousness. And the other guy would not even so much as look up to heaven and said, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said, only one of them went away justified. You're only justified. You're only declared righteous by God when you come to him with nothing but your sin. You don't bring nothing to the game except your sin. And he, in his grace, justifies you. That creates humility. That has effects on our lives. Gratitude. Sin is self-centered. It causes us to be self-focused, self-absorbed, self-obsessed. 2 Corinthians 5.15 Paul says that Jesus came so that we would no longer live for ourselves. Because sin is self-centered, complaint is more natural than gratitude. <laughs> Think about that. Complaint's more natural than gratitude. Wow. Uh-huh. This is not gratitude. Um, or excuse me. Here again, the doctrine of justification is transformative. One of the beautiful fruits of this doctrine is a profound sense of gratitude. It's not gratitude because my day is going well, because people like me because I'm healthy, because I'm affluent, because I'm successful, because I have a big stake in front of me, or because my children don't publicly embarrass me. Now, you can be thankful for all of those things. No, this gratitude transcends our situations and our locations and our relationships. It's gratitude that's not weakened by difficulty. This gratitude doesn't rise and fall with every rough patch of life. You know you're living out the gospel of justification by grace through faith when you wake up in the morning and say to yourself, my marriage isn't all it could be. I have concerns about my children. My finances worry me at times. But here's what's more important than all that. I can't believe I'm completely forgiven and unfailingly and eternally loved. It's a love I didn't deserve and could not have earned. Jesus lived and died so that I would know this love. Even on my very worst day, I am loved. Let your heart fill with gratitude that because of what Christ did, you are an adopted son or daughter of the King of kings and Lord of lords. Stop to consider the reality that a holy God doesn't look on you as a judge, but with the loving eyes of a father because Jesus took your judgment on himself. How can you not be filled with life-shaping thankfulness? So if you show me a joyless person, I will show you a proud person. So what, what do those have to do with each other? Because somewhere in there, you've decided you deserve better. 
But see, the fact that God had to go through all the stuff he went through to justify me gives me gratitude for these eternal gifts that he's provided, knowing all the while that I deserve nothing better than hell. If I get that then, I can have joy. And I don't mean you're giddy. I don't mean you're the person who, who, who lies about life. You know, there are people who lie about life. I mean, they smile all the time and everything's great. No, it isn't. I know it isn't. More importantly, God knows it isn't. He wrote a book about you. You're in it. You're in a fallen world. It's, a bad, it's, a, it's got lots of difficulty and it's okay to say so. But at the same time, I can have this abiding sense of delight that God is at work in my life. That's what joy is even in the midst of the junk. And so there's pride there somewhere. I deserve better. How can I deserve better? What better could I be given than the infinitely valuable things that Christ has provided? All right, quickly, freedom. The justifying mercies of Christ set you free from the burdens of the law. Since Jesus perfectly measured up to every requirement of the law, we now have peace with God and full access to relationship with him, even though in this life we never measure up. Yes, we should determine to obey and we should resist sin, but we're freed from doing either as a means of achieving acceptance with God. If you think, if you measure yourself that way and you continually fail, then you're continually going to be wondering about, where am I with God? Justifying grace frees you from the paralyzing burden of guilt. No longer do we have to live in regret, dragging the heavy load of our past sins into our present and future. No longer do we have to hide in fear of the hammer of God's anger coming down on us. No longer do we have the burdensome work of denying, minimizing, and hiding our sins, working to make our sin feel in our hearts as less than sinful. Wow, that's a mouthful. It's really good. I can say it's really good because I didn't write it. That's really great. And here's what that's talking about. People, we do it all the time. The minimizing, oh man, I've done enough counseling over the years. I mean, it's just amazing what people do. I mean, I have a guy, I had a guy years ago, and he's, he's, he's deceased now, but years ago, and he was, struggled with alcohol. And, uh, but he had just learned through all of that to use words to minimize what he, what he did. Um, he, would, he would call his indiscretions when he would go to the bottle again a lapse. I had a lapse in judgment. Okay. Well, you know, the Bible, doesn't, the Bible doesn't describe it that way. The Bible describes addictions as idols. And what it truly is is another time that you've turned to the idol of your addiction rather than turning to the true and living God. That's the way the Bible describes it. Now, the beautiful thing is Jesus has died to cover all of Every time you turn to your idol, whatever it is, and I got my idols too. Mine doesn't happen to be a bottle or a substance or something like that. So I'm not trying to be overly harsh on that. But he's just learned to talk that way. And to minimize then what's, what's happening. When, when you do something wrong, if you believe this and you really get this, when you sin, it gives you the ability to own it. You can just own it. You don't have to cover it because Jesus has covered it. And we spend a lot of time covering, acting like we're better than we are. But if I'm secure in this, 
Now I can own it. You're right. I did that. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, and will you forgive me? Identity. One of the sweet blessings of God's justifying mercies is the new identity that's ours because we're in Christ, forgiven, adopted, eternally loved children. We no longer have to search for identity, meaning, and purpose because we have them. And the thing that's so powerful about the identity that's ours as a result of God's justifying mercy is that nothing and no one can take it away. Here's the only place to find an identity that is not only heart-satisfying but also eternally stable. Can't change. In Christ, forgiven, adopted, and eternally loved by the Father is who we are and who we will forever be. We're freed from having to be something. Freed from having to prove we're worth something. Freed from longing for something that will give us importance, prominence, power. Freed from being addicted to people's acclaim, respect, appreciation, love. Freed from letting accomplishments define us. Freed from letting titles depict that we have worth. Freed from asking cars, houses, and vacations to be markers of our identity. Freed from the identity we get from political tribalism. We are freed from getting our identity from being in charge or in control from needing to look strong, prepared, capable, and unafraid, from needing to hide our weaknesses and deny our failures, freed from putting on a public face as an attempt to hide what's actually going on inside, because we don't get our value from how others respond to us, we're freed from bitterness and fantasies of vengeance when we're mistreated. We're freed from the toxic identity anxieties that haunt so many of us, that get in the way of what we've been called to do and harm our relationships. One of the sweet blessings of God's justifying grace is how vertical identity frees us from horizontal identity chaos. Vertical. I've got my identity from God. Therefore, my identity with everybody else doesn't control. That's what it's saying. Values. One of the benefits of God's justifying mercies is the power to clarify and reorient our values. What that is saying, and I encourage you to read it, uh, but what it's saying is, hey, look, if God did all of this for me, then it should reorient my, orient my life so that I'm doing all I can for him. It changes my values. What I value? I value God. I value him because he values me. We love him, says 1 John 4, 8. We love him because he first loved us. And it changes than the way we look at our priorities. Lastly, defense. There's no greater defense against the lies of the enemy which are meant to weaken your faith and your resolve than the truth of justification. The doctrine of justification tells you your acceptance has not been nor ever will be based on the track record of your righteousness. Your acceptance with God, even on your worst, most foolish, and most rebellious today, stands on the solid rock of the perfectly righteous life and the complete penalty-paying death of the Lord Jesus. When Jesus cried on the cross, it is finished, he meant it. He had completed everything that needed to be done in order to secure your eternal forgiveness and acceptance with God. What a beautiful thing. Huh? So, one of the things I get my identity from is finishing on time. Dead on noon, okay? But I don't like to brag. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we've been able to have these weeks together to look at these precious doctrines that are taught in your word, but to tease them out and to see what they mean for us now. I pray, Lord, that you will help me, help us to meditate upon these things, to go back and, and look and to 
and to make application of them to our hearts, our lives, and that they might bear fruit, that they might show up uh, this afternoon in our interactions, uh, this coming week in the way we view ourselves, the way we view other people, the way we think about our circumstances. Uh, Lord, uh, a week from now, two weeks from now, uh, help us to see tangible improvements, improvements in the sense that we are looking more like the Lord Jesus. Your reclamation project in us and all of these precious truths that are centered in Him are designed for us to be conformed to His image. And so we pray, Lord, that each of us will see that happening week to week, month to month, year to year, because we are living in complete gratitude for what it is that you've done for us. Go with us this week as we serve you. We ask you to grant us safety and bring us back together next Lord's Day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.